Well, thank you and good morning. Yeah, as, as Neil said, um, this is the final part of our more series and the, the focus of the series has been very much on our need to experience God, to encounter God. We really do need that, that, this, that the faith that we have isn't just something which is lived out in our heads, as important as that side is, the intellectual part of it, but it's not just that, that it's a faith that is lived out experientially that it's an encounter faith, it's a faith that's full of life, that's full of vibrancy in such a way, and this is the crucial point really, in such a way that it flows out to those around us, to those people we're seeking to bless. All those names over there on the wall. And if you don't know what that's about, please pick up one of our blessed pocket guides over there or at the welcome area. But all those people we're seeking to bless, it's crucial that we're living our story, it's crucial that we're living out our faith. And so through this series, we deliberately left uh, a bit of space after the word, a bit, more talk, uh, a bit more space after the talk to respond to God and to receive from him. And it's the same again today. And I would really, really encourage you, really urge you to take the opportunity to respond to God in whatever way he's asking you to respond, in whatever he might be saying to you. He may have already been talking to you. He may talk to you over the next half an hour or so. But take the opportunity to respond to God. And so in previous weeks, we've spoken about being filled with more of God's power and more of God's love, more of God's peace and more of God's joy was last week. And actually, as I've been reflecting on all this and preparing for today, I realized that I actually experienced all of those things in a very short space of time when I became a Christian, in the moment, on the evening when I became a Christian. It was when I was 17. It was 25 years ago. I know that's unbelievable. Uh, but I was 17, and I was a fairly normal 17-year-old. You know, I was, I was probably pretty arrogant and self-centered, so a normal, no. Uh, I was probably pretty arrogant, but I wasn't rebellious, or, you know, I was doing well at school. I was, I was going to go on and do A-levels and go on to university, had good prospects, all that kind of thing. So I was a normal 17-year-old, doing well. I was a good person in the eyes of the world. And then my sister, Ellie and Francis, many of you know Ellie and Francis. Francis is one of the elders here at King's, up at the Hazelmere site. That's uh, my sister and brother-in-law. They invited me down to Horsham, where they were living at the time, to hear somebody speak and tell their story. It, it was a testimony evening, and, and the story they told was amazing. It was one of these amazing stories that when you listen to it, you think, either this guy's lying or he's telling the truth. And I absolutely believed he was telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, this has got to change something in my life. Life can't be the same again, because it really does mean that there really is more to life than this. And actually, my life is heading in totally the wrong direction, as good as it might be in the eyes of others. And so I I knew this was a really significant moment for me. My heart was pounding away. I knew that when the call came, I should respond. I should do something to respond to Jesus, to give myself to him, because I was convinced that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But actually, in the moment, fear held me back. I stayed rooted to my seat when that call came. And then, the, and then the moment passed and the meeting ended and I felt gutted. I felt like I'd really blown it. But then, then Francis came up behind me and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, are you okay? And I was just, in that moment, I mean, this is the grace of God. In that moment, I was just overwhelmed with the power and the love of God. And I was just in pieces. It broke me. It just completely undid me. And then a few minutes later, somebody prayed with me. And as they prayed, it was like something washed over me and through me. And it was, first of all, this sense of unbelievable peace 
Like everything in that moment was right. Everything in me was as it should be in that moment. Unbelievable peace. And then that turned into joy. Just running through me, washing through me. I was walking around. It felt like I was floating around, seriously. And I was grinning at everybody. I couldn't hold it in. And so in in the space of 10 to 15 minutes, I experienced the power, the love, the peace, and the joy of God. All the things that we've been talking about. But there was something else as well. And this leads to what I'm talking about today. That in that moment of being overwhelmed by the power and love of God, it was like I had this sense, it was a terrifying sense of seeing myself as I really was. You remember, I'm this person who in the eyes of the world is a good person, a decent guy, a moral person, not rebellious, Sunday school background, good prospect, all the rest. And I suddenly became aware. It was like stepping outside of my body. I mean, it also happened in an instant, but it was like stepping outside of myself and seeing the sheer ugliness of my sin and how filthy my heart was and how abhorrent my sin and my self-centeredness was to God, how grievous that was to him, how desperately I needed God and his forgiveness in my life and that I really didn't deserve it. And it's that experience that was then immediately followed by this overwhelming sense of the love of God, this pure, beautiful love of God. Why would God love Someone like me was what the question I'm left with. Why would God love someone like me? Someone like that. And that is God's grace. It's his grace. I didn't know that was the word for it at the time. I didn't know much of what was going on in me at the time. But that he would love a wretch like me as the, as the hymn goes. That someone who is so undeserving of God's love, in fact deserving of condemnation and judgment, suddenly found themselves loved with an intensity and a passion and a purity That is just beyond description. It's the grace of God. It's the epitome of the grace of God. And that is what changed my life. It's his grace, this unmerited gift that changed my life. Has God's grace changed your life? Have you received it? Are you living in the good of it? Does your life reflect a grace-filled life? Has the grace of God changed your life? I'm going to unpack this a bit more through a glorious passage of scripture that I can't hope to do justice to. Today, but my hope is that the scripture will kind of speak for itself. It's Ephesians 2. So if you have a Bible, open it at Ephesians 2 so you can just keep gazing down at these, these glorious words. And if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen behind me. Verses 1 to 10 says this. This is the Apostle Paul saying, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's just a glorious passage about the grace of God. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons why we sometimes struggle to receive God's grace and to really live in the good of God's grace. One is when we really don't realize or appreciate our need of it, just how much, how indispensable it is to us. And the second is when we don't grasp or appreciate just how costly the grace of God is to him. Grace is a gift. It's part of what the word means. Grace is a gift. So just to explain that, so justice, we all know what justice is. Justice is getting what we deserve, isn't it? When somebody has justice, it means they've got what they deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. That's withheld from us. But grace is something altogether different. Grace is when we are given what we don't deserve. Grace is a gift. It's something you haven't worked for. You haven't paid for it. You you haven't achieved it. You haven't earned it. It's pure unmerited gift. If you've done something to earn it, it's no longer grace because it's no longer a gift. Now, here's the thing. We receive lots of um, free gifts that actually don't make the slightest difference to our lives. So, this pen, okay, this says British Red Cross on it. This is a British Red Cross pen. It's a very nice gift. I appreciate it. It's very clever, actually, because it's got this thing. Look. It's got this thing which, you know, if somebody's choking or if somebody has stopped breathing, it's very helpful. So this is a very helpful gift. I did nothing to earn this, but this has not changed my life. Why? Well, because I have other pens, or I know where to get a pen if I didn't have one. So if I was to lose this, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be all right for my writing needs. But also, while the Red Cross obviously put some money into this, it's not a very costly gift. This in itself doesn't cost very much. It's not like when someone gives you something that really costs them, really cost them something sacrificially. They've really put out a lot. Then that means a bit more. I mean, if the Red Cross had given me a house then that would have changed my life a bit more. But, so we get given lots of free gifts that don't really change our lives. But what if, imagine this situation, what if you needed a life-saving operation? I mean, this is your only hope. If you want to live, this is your only hope. But the operation isn't available on the NHS and you have to pay for it. But even if you were to sell everything you had, including your kids, you wouldn't even be near, you wouldn't even be in the ballpark of being able to pay for this operation. But then somebody who has a bit more than you decides, he sees your situation, decides to liquidate every asset they have in order to pay for this surgery for you. Now that's a gift, that's a free gift, but with a very different effect. One, because you need this. This is indispensable to you. In order to live, you need this. You can't do without it. And secondly, because of how costly it was to the other person. They went into poverty to give you this gift. This is sacrificial to give you something. Now that is a gift that changes your life and changes probably the way you live your life. Now I think this Ephesians 2 passage addresses both our need of God's grace, our utter need of God's grace and the cost of God's grace and then it leads us into a third point. So here's where we're going to say the first part, the first section in verses 1 to 3 establishes what we were what we were before grace, and therefore how in need of God's grace we are. The second section, verses 4 to 7, establishes what we are in Christ. And through that, we'll look at the cost to him. And then the third section, verses 8 to 10, shows us what it leads to, how grace should change our lives. So first, what we were. 
what we were, what condition were we in. Let me just look at verses 1 to 3 again. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Actually, I just, I'm just going to read that bit because that's enough. That's pretty emphatic. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead. You were dead in your sin. There's a big difference between being ill and dead. Because there are differing degrees of illness. You can be mildly ill through to very, very seriously ill and all sorts of things in between. But the thing is, you can do something about it. You can, you can do something about treating that illness. You can contribute to your recovery or to the treatment of the symptoms by going to the doctor or by taking medicine or by living more healthy or whatever it is. You can contribute to that. But if you're dead, you're dead. There are no differing degrees of deadness. You might have died in different ways, but you're just still dead. And so what you need is resurrection. But you can't do anything about that. You can't contribute anything to that. Why? Because you're dead. Getting the the point? It takes resurrection power to save you. Do you realize that? If you're... if, you're, if you are somebody, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you know that your life is in Christ, that he's the Lord of your life, your salvation was an absolute miracle. It, along the lines of Lazarus, come out of the tomb. That kind of miracle. Or where God says, let there be light. And there was light. That's the kind of power that is needed to save you and to make you alive to God. And you don't have that power. You can contribute nothing to it. But I think we often lose sight of that. We, we sometimes kid ourselves into thinking that we contributed something to our salvation. That there, maybe there was, some, there was something good in me that God responded to. That he looked at me and said, well, there's something I can work with there. Like I wasn't really dead in my sins. I was just a little bit sick in my sins. Not perfect, but not that bad either. Just a bit sick in my sins. So I needed to go to God the doctor to get myself better. You know, or I wasn't completely spiritually bankrupt and incapable of ever paying off my debt to God. No, I was just a little bit in debt to God. And with a bit of help and a bit of hard work, I can pay it off. If we don't understand and acknowledge the condition that we were in, or the condition that you are in, if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, then God's grace becomes a gift like this. It's like the Red Cross pen doesn't really change and shape your life. It doesn't alter your life because you don't think you really need it. You're not dependent on it. It's helpful, but it's not indispensable. Some people need it a lot more than me. And I think the problem with this is that we confuse our fundamental condition, what we are and what we were, we confuse that with morality and our tendency to compare ourselves to others on a moral scale. I'm not such a bad person, really, But the thing is, this isn't about whether you're a good or a bad person. It's not about whether you're a moral or an immoral person. If you're someone who's towed the line your whole life and always done the right thing and always always been kind to people and all the rest, or you're someone who's murdered several people, it's not about that. Like I said, when I was 17, I, in the eyes of the world, I was a decent person. I was a moral person, a good person. But compared to God... I saw the blackness and the filthiness of my heart, the abhorrence of my sin to God. This is not about good or bad people. I think it's really important that we get that, particularly if you're somebody who's grown up in a Christian home. I think sometimes it's really hard to grasp your need of God's grace because it feels like you're good and it's not about being good or bad. 
It's not about being moral or immoral. It's not about that at all. It's about our fundamental condition. It's not about saying Christians are good and non-Christians are bad. No, no, no. There are lots of people in the world who are not Christians who make a far bigger positive difference in the world than a lot of Christians do. It's not about that. It's about your fundamental condition. And we can't understand God's grace if we don't first understand what we were before his miraculous intervention, that we were all dead in our transgressions and sins and utterly powerless to do anything about it. We're all born equally spiritually dead, all in the same boat. The connection with God broken, whether you're a moral person or an immoral person. It's not that some are a bit more dead and some are a bit less dead than others, that some just need a bit of a boost from God while others need radical conversion. No, you were dead, unable to contribute to your own spiritual Resurrection, unable to contribute to your own salvation. As it says in verse 3, we were by nature objects of wrath. In our very nature, we couldn't help but be displeasing and offensive to God. That is what we were. Praise God, there's good news. So verses 4 to 7. I love it when there's a but God in the Bible. It's good news. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and he seized us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God's response to our condition and his response to our sin was not to just leave us in our sin, to leave us dead. It's to make us alive with Christ, to raise us up with him, to seat us with him in the heavenly realms. Why? Because of his great love for us, because of his indescribable mercy. And of course, while all those things have a future element to them, that there will be a day when we will be raised with Christ, when we will be seated with him in the heavenly realms, what we have to notice, and it's very deliberate in the passage, is that all of those things are written in the past tense. He made us alive. It's done He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us with him. It's something that happened the moment you received Christ. It's done. It is finished. That in God's eyes, the moment you received Christ, that is now your condition of being alive. You're no longer dead in your sins. You are now alive in him and pure and holy and righteous. In other words, the gospel and grace of Jesus Christ can never be translated as if you live the right way, if you do all the right things, and if you perform well, then one day you'll be raised with Christ. Now, that's what other religions do. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is so much more glorious than that. It's happened to you if you've received Christ. It's a, it's a fact. Unshakable, immovable fact. And this is language of togetherness with Christ. It's of union with Christ. It says you've been made alive together with Christ. You've been raised together with Christ, seated together with Christ. The moment you receive Christ, you're united with him. But the amazing thing is this, that you're united with him in such a way that everything he has ever done and everything that he deserves becomes yours. It becomes yours as if you're him, co-heirs with Christ. You become as loved and as honoured and as accepted as his actions, as his life deserves. You were dead. Now you're alive by the grace of God. But here's the flip side of that. 
in terms of what it cost. That what the grace of God cost him is free to you, but it's infinitely costly to him. Because just as you are united with Christ in order to be able to receive all of his benefits, so he is so united with us that he got everything that our lives deserve for our rebellion to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, it's just staggering. The Lord of lords, the King of kings, the glory of heaven, the one who had all the riches of heaven at his disposal chose to come as a poor man. He was born into poverty. He chose to come as a flesh and blood body that could be tortured and beaten and killed. And he was tortured and beaten and killed so that we can be raised to life. But it's so much more than that. The cost to him is so much more than the physical agony, which is indescribable to us. We just can't understand the physical agony that he went through on the cross. But that wasn't even the worst of it for him. The true agony was, it was indicating what he cries out on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by his father. That was the agony for Jesus. That in that moment, he experienced the eternal separation from God that our sin deserves. He took it all. It all fell on him. The most beautiful, glorious, perfect being in the whole universe became sin. He became abhorrent to God. He became repulsive to God so that we can be accepted. He was rejected by God so that we can be accepted by him. The full weight of the wrath and the judgment of God for the sin of the world was all on him. It's a massive price. It's an incomprehensible price. And he paid it. He paid it all to save a wretch like me. I mean, no wonder John Newton called to him amazing grace. I mean, it's almost unbelievable grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now... I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It's amazing grace. The grace of God was infinitely costly to him. It was utterly necessary and indispensable for us. And so unlike my Red Cross pen, the grace of God is a free gift that changes your life, and it should change your life. So the question is, what does that look like? How does it change our lives? What What does a grace-changed life really look like? Well, the first thing I think is to look back to what Ron was talking about last week, the joy of the Lord, being filled with more of God's joy. You see, the knowledge and the experience of God's grace for you, that should infuse your life with such joy, such thanksgiving, such gratitude, such humility. This is where joy comes from. You know, if you have no joy in your life, if, if, you, if your life isn't filled with thanksgiving, then you really haven't understood what you were and what you now are in Christ. Because the grace of God is so outrageous, it's so undeserved, that we, we should be standing in bemused and delighted and excited amazement every single day of our lives. I can't believe this has happened to me. How could you love someone like me? But thank you that you do. Thank you that you call me a saint. Thank you, that, thank you that, Jesus, you came and rescued me. Wow, you're so good. That should fill us, infuse our lives with such a sense 
of joy. If you understand the grace of God, it puts a reservoir of joy in your life. Now, that's not the absence of trouble and struggles in life. Everyone has troubles in their life to a greater or a lesser extent. But the question is this. Does the trouble you encounter in life, does it utterly shake your foundations and leave you feeling insecure and doubtful and miserable? Or do you stand on the unshakable foundation of God's grace? Knowing that there is no circumstance of life that can ever change, ever alter what God has done and who he says you now are in him. Nothing can ever change that. It's an unshakable foundation. Because grace says, yes, you were a miserable sinner. Yes, you were hopeless. But now God calls you a saint. He calls you a holy one. He calls you a righteous one. Why? Because that is what you are. He's not pretending. He's not just playing games here. And it's not because you're a good moral person. It's because your fundamental condition, your position has changed. You were in darkness. Now you're in light. You're united with Christ. You're not just wearing a disguise that Jesus gives you. It's not like you're trying to sneak into heaven under Jesus' coat. No, no, no. You are a new creation. You're united with Christ and he makes you new. And that should bring such joy into our lives. I just can't believe it. Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. You know, one of the most... um, convincing ways, one of the most effective ways of convincing people that there isn't a God who loves them and who gave everything for them is a miserable Christian. A miserable, joyless, lifeless Christian. You can't understand the grace of God and you can't receive the grace of God and be miserable. Let me just explain that a little bit more because it could be misunderstood. In the in the Lord of the Rings, in the book, The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf is talking to Pippin. And it's the darkest hour. This is where the world is looking like it's going to be consumed by evil and darkness. It's a very serious moment. And Gandalf laughs. In this moment, Gandalf laughs. And it says this. It says, Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now beside his own. For the sound of that laugh had been gay and merry. Yet in the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow So as he looked more intently, he perceived that under it all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. A Christian should be marked out by that kind of joy. Doesn't mean you can't be a serious kind of person. Doesn't mean you're, you're a joker your whole life and you go around laughing at everything. No, no, no. It's about having that deep reservoir of joy, this fountain of mirth that would be enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Christians should be the most joy-filled people in the world. That is one way that grace should change your life because we've been unbelievably blessed. Verses 8 to 10 say this. They say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. I mean, Paul is saying here, just in case you missed it before, when I was talking about dead, just in case, you know, just in case when Paul's saying, when I, when I told you you were dead in your transgressions and sins and that you were objects of wrath, just in case you still have any doubts about your part in your salvation, I'm going to tell you this, that even the faith you have is a gift from God. You're saved through the grace of God, which is a gift of God. And even the faith to respond to him and believe him is also a gift from God. You really didn't contribute anything. You contributed nothing to your salvation. Not by works that no one may boast. The grace of God is radically humbling. 
It leaves no room for boasting. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is like this, it's like this, uh, this view of, of what the Christian life looks like, of how to live the Christian life. But he starts it with this line, blessed are the poor in spirit, because he's saying, if you think you can live this on your own, <laughs> not a chance. This is the gateway, being poor in spirit. So what does poor in spirit mean? It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-reliance, a complete absence of, I can do this in my own strength. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means recognizing you come to God empty-handed, offering nothing. It means that you're powerless to change your condition yourself. You're incapable of living up to God's standard in your own strength. It means recognizing that God doesn't love you and save you because there's something better about you when compared with somebody else. No, when you know that you're a sinner saved by grace, that profoundly affects how you view yourself and how you view others. And particularly those who, in the eyes of the world, would be perceived as somehow lower than you, somehow worse than you. When you look at someone who's failed morally in some way, or someone whose life is just a mess, do you look down on them with a sense of superiority? You don't if you know that you're a sinner saved by grace, and therefore that you have no need to justify yourself in that way, because you can't, but God already has. The thing is, we live in a society that is built on putting others down to feel good about ourselves, to elevate ourselves by treading on others. That's what our society is built on. You know, at least I'm not like that kind of a person. At least I'm better than them. It's how we make ourselves feel good. I mean, you see it all around. If you're on social media, you see the shaming. Social media is turning our culture into a culture of shame. (laughs) It's all about shame, the shaming that goes on all the time on social media with people kind of clamoring in their their virtue signaling frenzy, wanting to be seen as someone who denounces this opinion because I've categorized that as hateful and I want to show everybody that I'm not in that category, I'm not like that person but actually quite often using hateful language themselves, interestingly. Or I'm going to publicly denounce something that this person, this celebrity said, I'm going to denounce it as transphobic or homophobic or racist, even though I haven't really looked at what they actually said or looked at what the context was. But because my publicly expressed keyboard warrior outrage tells the world, it screams to the world that I am a good person. I'm a tolerant person. I'm a moral person. That person is scum. And I'm not like them. We see it all around. And we spot it in others. But do we spot it in ourselves? Because sometimes it can take more subtle forms. It can come in the form of prejudice. And a prejudice can be consciously held and it can be subconsciously held. I mean, we're all affected by the environment we grow up in. We're all affected by what we hear on the news. We all hold certain prejudices, sometimes subconsciously. When we hold prejudice, it's just another way of elevating ourselves when we compare ourselves to another group of people. If you look down on others in any way, if you hold any kind of prejudice, you need more of the grace of God. I need more of the grace of God. But grace takes away the possibility of boasting and self-justification because you understand what you were and that what you are now is only by the grace of God. Before encountering God's grace, your sense of identity, your sense of self-esteem was largely built on comparing yourself with others and very often looking down 
on people. But having encountered the grace of God, you now realize actually your true sense of identity, your, your way of finding self-esteem only comes by looking up. Looking up to the only one who ever had the right to boast, but he chose not to. And instead, as it says in, in Philippians 2, he, being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the ultimate somebody, he became a nobody, willingly and out of pure love for hopeless sinners like you and me. Staggering. So grace brings joy, grace brings humility, and then you're called God's workmanship. You're called God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema, from which we get our word poem. You're God's poem. You're his work of art. You're his masterpiece. And do you know what that does? It frees you to love yourself. Because actually the opposite of looking down on others, but it's equally a form of pride, can be when we beat ourselves up over everything, when we hate ourselves. It's another way of trying to earn favor. Grace frees you to love yourself, but not in a proud and arrogant way. But because you're loving what God has done. You're loving who he says you are, what he's made you to be. You're just agreeing with God. And then you can love others as, as, as you love yourself, as, as we're told to do. It frees you to do that without any pride, without any arrogance. You're God's work of art. You're his masterpiece. And you're created for a purpose. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There are things that you are uniquely called to do. As a person saved by grace. Not to earn grace, but because of grace. Not to take the credit for them, because these are things that God has given you to do. And he's given you the ability to do them. He's equipped you to do these good works. We all have things to do. We all have people in our lives only you can reach. So the grace-filled life is a life of joy. It's a life of humility. It's a life of purpose. It's a life of freedom. Freedom from comparing yourself with others. Freedom from having to find your identity and your sense of purpose, and your sense of self-esteem in our, your, in our performance. You don't have to perform for it. So Tim Keller says this. In his, he wrote a great little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I heartily recommend it to you. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a very short book. But he says this. I'm paraphrasing at first. He says, basically, we're all in the world and we're all looking for the ultimate verdict that we count for something. That our lives are important. That we that we matter, and that we're good, that we're valuable, that we're acceptable. And so it's like we put ourselves on trial every day, performing to get that verdict. But in Christianity, the verdict is already, is already in, and so you're free to perform on the basis of the verdict. To perform because of the verdict, to, to do good works out of the identity that's been given you by the grace of God, not to achieve that identity. So how is the verdict already in? So this is where I'm quoting It says, because Jesus Christ went on trial instead. It was an unjust trial in a kangaroo court, but he didn't complain. Like the lamb before the shearers, he was silent. He was struck, beaten, put to death. Why? As our substitute. He took the condemnation we deserve. He faced the trial that should be ours, so that we do not have to face any more trials. And so I simply need to ask God to accept me Because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Just repeat that line. So I simply need to ask God to accept me. 
because of what the Lord Jesus has done. And then the only person whose opinion counts looks at me and he finds me more valuable than all the jewels in the earth. The grace of God is utterly staggering. You were dead in your sins and you've been made alive with Christ. Does your life show it? Has the grace of God changed your life? Ask him for more. Ask him for more of his grace to fill you with a greater revelation of his grace, more of his power, more of his love, more of his peace, more of his joy. And if you're here today and you've never received the grace of God, you know, you hear me talking about the moment I became a Christian, about being born again, about being made alive in Christ, and you know you're not alive in Christ. Simply ask him to accept you because of what Jesus has done. Because you can encounter and you can receive new life in Christ today if you want it. So ask. Ask him. Respond to him. And let us all receive his grace. Amen.